thanks for joining us once again on Core Ideas, the podcast dedicated to all things lake sediments. And as always, uh, my name is Adam Jaziorski and joined by my good friend, Josh Steampond. Hey, how's it going? It is going good. And it is going good because today we're continuing our arc on topical paleolimnology. And we have a very special guest joining us for the conversation, which is very cool. Yeah. Our third guest. Our third guest. Yeah. This is getting to be a real thing. Yeah. We're, we're roping people who don't live in our house or are our boss to uh, <laughs> and our former supervisor to be guests. So that's and great. Talk to us. So thanks very much to that guest. Yep. And Do you want to introduce yes. him? So... I guess we'll kind of set it up by we're continuing the current arc on, you know, hot topics in paleolimnology. And what we wanted to talk about this time was biofactors or biofactor transport. And we thought it's not something I know very much about. Um, and, not, and you're shaking your head. And now that no, it's Josh. Not really. So we thought we'd bring in an expert. And I happen to work with one in the lab group whose name is Matt Duda. He's a PhD candidate at Queen's University, who works on biovectors and paleoenology, specifically um, um, impacts of large bird colonies on small ponds in oceanic islands. And um, it's very timely having him talk with us today because he is one of this year's co-winners of the Peters Award given by the Society of Canadian Limnologists. Yeah, and we've talked about the Peters Award a couple times, uh, but that's the award given to a Canadian student or a student studying in Canada for the best paper, uh, first authored paper of that year. And this year, Matt is one of the co-winners and, and you know, we'll hopefully try and rope uh, Madison Bell, who is the other co-winner, into an episode in the future because I think her research would be very much also a, a good contributing topic to topical paleolimnology or just a really interesting episode as well. But no, congrats to both of them. Uh, it's the first time we've said that. Um, but it was very topical that this fit into the topics we were already interested in talking about. Yeah. And we'll put links to the award-winning paper in the show notes. Um, but it was published uh, last year in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B and is called Striking Centennial Scale Changes in the Population Size of a Threatened Seabird. And let's get into it. Here's our conversation with Matt. So today on the show, we have uh, Matt Duda as a guest slash guest host to help talk us about uh, biovectors in general. And... Uh, he recently won, or is the current winner, of this year's Peters Award, um, which is the award given to SCL for the best student written paper, uh, best written paper by a Canadian student, our co-winner. There were two winners this year. And his work uh, on biovectors in that paper, which we'll get to later, is part of the reason that we asked him to join us here today. So welcome, Matt. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. No problem. And full disclosure, um, Matt is a member of the Pearl Lab, and we've known each other for a couple of years. And um, 
used to see each other on a regular basis in the before times. Yeah. Has he like grown his hair out to like shoulder length or something while he's been locked in, <laughs> in his house? Wouldn't he be funny? Uh, it's quite the opposite. His beard's a, beard's a bit more trimmed since the last time I saw him. Yeah, I, I just recently had to clean up a little bit. It's uh, <laughs> looking a bit too Bushman. Getting ready for whenever everything opens up again, he can go back in. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So um, in our current arc, uh, we're talking about topical uh, issues or subjects within paleoimmunology. And today we're going to talk about biovectors. And for those that are not familiar with the term, um, that's referring to when biological organisms basically transfer, transfer something f from somewhere to somewhere else. And if you do some Google searches on the term, it's often related to epidemiolo epidemiology and disease. But that's not what we're talking about today. So we're not talking about bats or pangolins in a 2020 sense. We're talking about the unidirectional focusing of a contaminant into a particular location. And within paleolimnology, usually what we're talking about when we're talking about biovectors is contaminants and or nutrients. And uh, typically, paleolimnologists are interested in the signals and markers uh, left in uh, lake sediments um, showing either large quantities of a substance being transported or substances being transported large distances from one environment to another. And the most striking example, and one that Matt knows a lot about, is from marine to terrestrial, uh, to freshwater or terrestrial environments. And there are a couple of big kind of, I guess, marquee examples in this general topic. Um, you have the iconic images of salmon bringing large amounts of marine nutrients uh, to their spawning lakes. Um, you have um, people like the Thule whalers, so uh, the predecessors of the Inuit and the Yuk peoples in like uh, northern regions where they captured whales or hunted whales and brought them inland to, uh, to butcher and at their villages more inland. And so it'd be a huge source of nutrients in the small ponds in their, in their uh, village areas. Um, and then also... Uh, seabird colonies with the huge amounts of guano that basically roll downhill from the uh, the colonies into freshwaters on um, the colony islands. So acting as a huge source of fertilization uh, for for these for these uh, environments. That, <laughs> did I say that right, Matt? Yeah, that that all that all makes sense. Yep, I would agree. And really what makes this interesting is it's a, a real uphill nature of the, uh, within this topic because um, biovector transport is happening all over the place all the time. But what we really care about is when it's basically being transported in the reverse of the typical energy flow. So we care about when uh, marine is brought into terrestrial, marine nutrients brought into terrestrial environments because really that's like a reversal of the normal way of things. There's much less kind of interest per se in the biovector nature of terrestrial nutrients flowing downstream into a marine environment because the magnitude of that is just giant of what's happening naturally, whereas pulling in a giant well beside a small, you know, one or two hectare pond um, would be a huge change to that small environment. And in paleontology, uh, you know, we choose what we look at as indicators based on what we can measure. And in this case, we talked about a bunch of things before in terms of nutrient indicators, so things like diatoms or stable isotopes. 
um, because even if when we are uh, interested in nutrients, those can't be measured directly in the sediments due to mobility. Um, and so this is where we can get really into the meat of Matt's work with seabirds because, um, you know, in his examples, uh, looking at the potential fertilization of these remote island ponds, um, he was using these sort of indirect markers to measure changes in colony size through time. Um, so, uh, yeah, do you want to maybe just give a brief background of Bakaloo Island and what drew you to that problem for the, the work you did there with the storm petrels? Yeah, absolutely. So with my work, I wasn't necessarily interested in Bakaloo Island. Uh, initially, what I was interested in were the birds, the storm petrels. So leeches, storm petrels are one of the most abundant seabirds that we have in Canada. And they have a global impact because of how much nutrients they're able to transfer from the marine ecosystem into the terrestrial one. Uh, the problem with storm petrels, though, is that they're nocturnal and they're really small. And that means for people who are trying to survey them and understand their population sizes, it's really difficult. Traditionally, with storm petrels and other birds, the way that you would survey their population size and census it is using banding and market recapture. But for birds like storm petrels that nest on remote islands that are nocturnal, they're hard to get to, it's a huge amount of effort to do a single count. And what that ends up causing is really few and sparse surveying points. So over the last 30 or 40 years, uh, since the 1980s for storm petrels specifically, we only have a handful of census and uh, survey data. And based on the available data, it appears that the storm petrel population is declining really dramatically and really quickly. Around 30% of the global population has declined. And that, uh, as concrete numbers, is several million storm petrels. And the problem is because we have a lack of this long-term data, lots of surveying, it's hard to tell how much has the population actually declined. If we pulled the scale back beyond the 1980s when that first survey happened, was the population of storm petrels higher or was it lower and now it's fluctuating up and down? Without regular data, we have no idea of what's going on. But like you mentioned about biovectors, storm petrels are really good at transporting, concentrating lots of nutrients and metals and other uh, biological products. And the reason why they do that so well is because they form these really large and dense colonies. So over the winter, when they're not breeding, they sit along the oceans uh, for the Atlantic population between the west coast of Africa and Brazil. But then when it becomes breeding season in April, all of the birds, all the storm petrels en masse return to where they were born into these big breeding colonies. And they can number in several millions of birds. And all of those birds are on these really small remote islands. They prefer remote islands because there's no predators there, uh, especially mammal predators because they can't get there. And on these islands with the millions of birds, they all start defecating. They all raise their chicks, which means that there's eggshells that are being washed in. Uh, any kind of carcasses are all being washed in, which fertilizes the entire terrestrial environment and fertilizes inadvertently the aquatic environment which then accumulates in the sediments. And then we can get at the sediments and do a paleo reconstruction to start to look at 
the long-term population dynamics. So to get at your original question about Bakalu, the reason why we chose that one is because it's the largest colony of storm petrels in the world. And so the main thing that we're always trying to do with biovector work is uh, get an ideal noise to signal ratio with lots and lots of birds on a small pond, then you have lots of signal relative to the amount of noise that might interfere with what we're actually trying to look at. If you don't have a lot of birds or the pond is too big or the lake is too big, then you start to introduce lots of noise and then we can't really get a strong signal of the population dynamics, which is in the end what we're trying to get at. So it's a combination in trying to uh, or being able to reconstruct the impact on the environment, the terrestrial, the aquatic, but also this conservation or potential conservation angle, uh, looking at the dynamics of the population. That's, yeah, that's interesting to be able to do both of those things at the same time, um, two applied uses of paleolimnology in one study organism or one study sort of location. Yeah, exactly. And and just for the, the like background, these are, so you said they're a small bird. Are they piscivorous, uh, like the fish uh, primarily? What is there looking? Because we've talked a little bit about nutrients and where uh, organisms fall in terms of their isotope composition based on the food web, et cetera. So what, where would these uh, little guys fit in that sort of spectrum? Yes, yeah, so storm petrels are aporotrophic organisms. They have a varied diet. Sometimes they eat uh, small fish, so uh, lanternfish is a really common uh, prey food for them. They also will eat uh, small copepods and squids and other little nectin. The way that the storm petrels feed is they, they fly over the surface and then they just uh, skim anything that's off of the top of the, the ocean and then they eat it and then they bring it back to wherever they have their breeding colony. Um, and then also in the background uh, info, I guess we should say exactly, we've been referring to Bakalu Island as, as if everyone I knows no exactly where it is. It is. <laughs> um, so you don't know where Bakalu Island is? <laughs> Adam started it. So. Uh, I, I've just, <laughs> I've been so entrenched in this project for the last several years that I just figured everybody knows what it is. Everyone I talk to knows where it is. Uh, but Bakalu Island, it's a six kilometer long island off of the east coast of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, around 60 kilometers north of St. John's, which is the major city there. Uh, it's a really special place because it's an ecological reserve specifically established to protect storm petrels and other birds like puffins and gannets that nest there. And it becomes uh, a more significant problem that we're trying to overcome is that the population still seems like it's declining, even though it's now an ecological reserve. So that adds to the problem. We're trying to figure out what's going on because clearly it's not human interference if the population is protected on the colony, or maybe it's human interference beyond the colony itself, you know, a more marine impact that is influencing the birds. And assumedly, there are some lakes on this this little island that uh, are the focus of your particular uh, methodological interest, if not interest in the overall project. Yeah, no, we're very fortunately, Back Blue Island has several uh, ponds. We call them ponds, even though they are lakes. We call them ponds because in Newfoundland, 
they indiscriminately call lakes and ponds ponds. That's just a way of, that's for some reason in Newfoundland, that's the way it is. Um, yeah, there's several, they're all uh, like a couple thousand meters squared. It's a pretty small compared to comparatively to most things that you would study in Ontario or the rest of North America. Okay. And then one other question, science, like uh, looking at the paper in proceedings B again earlier this morning. And one thing jumped out at me in like kind of the background info about the storm petrol that I guess I'd heard in like your presentation stuff before, but never really, um, never really caught on exactly what that meant. So this is the largest uh, colony, because I just, I'm not super familiar with seabirds in general. So it's the largest colony uh, of the storm, leeches storm petrel in the world. Uh, but then there's like, so 50% of the global population comes back to this one colony to breed. So they, I guess they scatter all over the place. Is that a normal thing for a particular, like a seabird colony species to be so concentrated globally in like one small location? Like, I don't know, is that, is that something weird about storm petrels that every, almost every storm petrel in the world comes to this one island to breed? Or is that a fairly common kind of colonial seabird behavior? Yeah, so it's actually pretty common for seabirds. I believe it's the number recently is 95% of seabirds are colonial. But the, uh, the size of the colony is very dependent on a lot of things, things like habitat availability, prey availability, and uh, interspecies interactions. So with storm petrels, they're very small and honestly quite weak relative to other seabirds. You know, if you think about other big birds like fulmars and gannets, they are much more robust compared to storm petrels. You know, there's evidence of storm petrels um, flying out to feed and then they come back and they're missing feet because a fish has eaten one of their, their feet out. Uh, out in the ocean. Yeah. So they have to form these really large, dense colonies to really protect themselves from any kind of predators. Uh, there's evidence of owls predating them. Uh, their prey while they're out feeding out in the ocean. They're bullied by other birds. So they have to form really dense colonies to kind of counteract that. You know, the meta population of storm petrels really requires uh, a robust genetic flow and robust. Uh, population dynamics to support these kind of birds. Okay. And then going into your study, what were the, I guess, so the concern was they'd been in decline between the, uh, since the 1980s, the survey conducted in the 1980s. Before you like got ruling, what were the potential mechanisms of the decline? Like what was, what was it being blamed upon? or thought to be? So we started off the project with two main questions. We wanted to go back and see, is the population truly in decline? And we only had two surveys to begin with, one in 1984 and the second one in 2012. Those two data points look like the populations had declined by around 40%, but two data points really isn't enough and isn't conclusive. So we were hoping that our paleo data would either support or refute that the population is actually in decline. The second main thing that we wanted to look at is if we extend that time scale, if we can go back 100 years, 200 years, was the population higher before the 1980s survey? Was it lower? 
what is the longer context, the temporal context for the population trend or decline that was supposedly seen by the surveys? And what indicators did you use to answer that question? Yeah, so we used a lot of really well-established paleo uh, proxies. The first one was nitrogen 15 uh, or delta N15. That's really, you guys have talked about all the isotopes, so I don't need to go into too much detail about N15, but suffice it to say that higher N15 is just uh, introductions from hydrophic organisms. Then we used uh, ornithogenic diatoms or diatoms that are related to the inputs of storm petrels, so things like uh, nutrients and metals. We used coronamids to examine changes in the pH or oxygen of the bottom of the lakes. And then we also used metals that are highly correlated to storm petrels. So because they're hydrophic organisms, they uh, bioaccumulate and biomagnify certain metals. The ones that we found are most correlated to storm petrels are uh, cadmium and zinc. And then we also used sedimentary chlorophyllase, so more birds, more nutrients, which means that more general productivity. And then finally, we used cholesterol, which is uh, a biomolecule correlated to uh, animal introductions. So six, six different indicators, um, which is, that's a lot, you know, a lot for anyone's study. Um, and uh, can you just summarize the findings uh, in that study? And then now we can dig a bit deeper. Yeah. So six proxies is a lot, but I, I guess the important thing to establish is that unfortunately there's no one magic proxy that can get us uh, bird trends. Otherwise I'd be all on top of that. <laughs> so unfortunately we have to use several different proxies that all hopefully corroborate one another. And by the more corroboration that you get from all of your proxies, the stronger evidence you have that what you think you're reconstructing in the past is truly what it, we're thinking it is. You know, All of our proxies all show the same trend, which means that we have really strong evidence that it is seabird trends when we look back in time in the sediment. What we found was that when you go back, we actually got a 1700 year record uh, across five different lakes, and they all show the same thing, that the storm petrel population reached a peak around the 1980s. So when that initial survey happened, we corroborated that, yeah, the population is in decline, but the most interesting aspect, or more interesting aspect to me at least, was that it appears that the population started to increase around the 1800s, reached a peak in the 1980s, and then started to decline. And then when you go further beyond that, going back in time, there's a large, long period of essentially a hiatus where there were very few birds. And then around 500 CE, we have another peak in the storm petrel population. So there's an increase, decrease around 500 CE when there was no human interference or human impact. And then around 1800 CE, when we do have humans around that Bakalu Island near St. John's, the population still increased. Now we have these really interesting results, but it unfortunately also uh, ends up bringing up more questions. You know, what's causing these fluctuations or cycles in the population size? And that's something that we're still trying to explore right now. Yeah, like um, uh, that's interesting because then it's telling you that the colony declined, but you have no information, for example, if 
for some reason, the, the birds bred at the next island over for some period of time or something like that. Like, so where would the second largest colony be located? Like, not too far away? Uh, in Japan. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, 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 so they didn't just... Moving next door isn't quite an option. Yeah, so that actually brings up the second part of what I was doing in my PhD research, which was looking at the long-term dynamics of a secondary large colony. Uh, because there's varying surveying data, it's either the third or the fourth largest colony, but that doesn't really matter in St. Pierre and Miquelon, which is around 270 kilometers southwest of Bakalu, so opposite corner of Newfoundland. And there's a really large colony of storm petrels there. And so based on the results from the Bakalu study, it appears that some kind of intercolony dynamics is happening here. And the reason, uh, the way to look at that is to look at a nearby colony and see if that also has these increases and decreases. And so when we did that, and we went back in time using similar proxies, we found that on Grand Columbia Island, which is in St. Pierre Miquelon, when the backwood population was at a maximum, the other colony was at a minimum. And then uh, when that reversed, the secondary colony increased again, while the first one declined. So it appears like there's an asynchronous or puzzle-like uh, population trends between the two colonies, supporting the idea that when there's a pressure on one island, the storm petrels will move to a different island. And then when there's a pressure on that one, say there's uh, not enough habitat, there's a predator on the island, they'll move somewhere else. So the problem becomes more complex the, uh, the further you dig into it. Yeah, but more interesting, I, I, would, I would argue as well. Are there any more records for this Japanese uh, island? Like, do they have longer records of actual counts, or have they ever tried to do similar reconstructions? They haven't, but I do think that it, it's interesting, and it's something that I think that uh, there's interest in doing. Uh, a lot of the paleo work, unfortunately, so far is focused in either North America or North Americans going to Antarctica and reconstructing penguin populations. It's a, it's a booming field right now with a lot of really interesting questions that can be addressed using either genetic work if you want to get at really long time scales, you know, beyond 10,000 years like you can with paleo. And then with paleo, the, the more recent, more recent in quotations, up to 10,000 years. So I, I think it's inevitable that the J Japanese colony will be one of the ones to do next. There you go. Sounds like some cool field work and a postdoc. Uh, yeah. It's all lined up. <laughs> Just need the funding, right? That's Happy it. to yeah. do it. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. And then I guess uh, since we've been talking about biovectors, that's a good, a very good uh, recon or uh, reconstruction, whatever <laughs> uh, summary of the population dynamics. But just thinking about the metals as a. Uh, contaminant because we talked about nutrients and that makes sense what uh did you see that that one cor corroborated quite well that we have an increase in those do you say cadmium and zinc so some of those metals yeah at the same time yes yeah they corroborate really strongly actually uh we sometimes call them bio elements you know the metals that are correlated to uh, uh organism introductions they're often the ones the proxies that most reflect uh, population dynamics. 
they're often quite stable in sediments. You know, they don't fluctuate too much. And uh, there's so many different elements that themselves can actually corroborate one another. You know, we've got cadmium and zinc, but then you could also start to look at arsenic, which can be uh, bioaccumulated by organisms. The same thing with mercury, which biomagnifies. We focused on two that are the most strongly correlated to storm petrels, but different seabirds will uh, increase different metals depending on their diet, their trophic uh, status, uh, where they're feeding, several things like that. Cool. Yeah. What they're feeding on. Yeah. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. So does that, is the fact that they eat a range of stuff, make that a little more complicated? Like if they were a really like uh stenophagous species, like they just picked one food item and stuck to mussels, for example, and got all the things that are filtered, filtered by mussels, would that make it easier? Do you think, or do they, say, do they become a little difficult compared to some other uh, taxa that way? Yeah, I think it, it would be much easier if they did if they were really specific with their diet, especially when you start to go back in time. If an organism is a generalist, then we don't know whether or not the reason why the, the proxies have decreased is because they're simply eating something else. And so we're not getting the same cadmium and zinc introductions. Uh, if an organism was very specific and had to eat, say mollusks, you would know that the introduction of those specific metals would stay consistent throughout the entire temporal record. It's just something we got to deal with. And yeah. again, that's another reason why multiple proxies, uh, looking at it from different angles, from nutrients, from metals, cholesterols, it all, it all has to line up for us to feel like we've got a true proper signal. And do you, do you find that the signal from things like contaminants of that nature kind of, uh, tails away as you get out of the more modern period when there assumedly is less contamination in the environment that they're going to be incorporating. So that one sort of in 17, 1700 years ago, you think you said might not be as strong as it is now in this soup that they're, uh, they're swimming around in. But I think that that would be true if we looked at uh, metals that have been increased or uh, released in higher concentrations due to anthropogenic activities like mercury. Sure. I think mercury would, you'd have a diminishing signal back in time. Or pops or something like that. Exactly. Persistent yeah. pollutants. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Whereas those are natural contaminants in the environment, but just part of the cycle of geology. No, that's cool. That makes exactly sense. Right. Just from a general study design point of view, did you go in planning to look at such a diverse suite of indicators or is it like more of a layers of an onion and in response to questions or was the goal always we're going to do diatoms uh isotopes the whole shebang right from the get-go uh my initial goal was to do as few proxies as possible to answer the questions that i was interested in that's the right answer <laughs> but the further back in time we went and the more interesting the question got, I, I dug into it and then it, it did become like an onion. You know, we started off with chlorophyll A and diatoms. Those had really interesting results. We knew we wanted to do isotopes because isotopes are one of the most well-established proxies for biovectors. So we had to look at that. And then we went and continued expanding and we're on to look at the more ecosystem type changes that the seabirds would have. 
That's why we got into coronamids. And then that's why we added on the cholesterol, you know, these different aspects, different avenues. It didn't start off this way. You know, the, my initial proposal was much, much bare than, than what it ended up becoming. But I'm really happy that we ended up going down all of these routes. Yeah, no, I, I, I would imagine many proposals uh, have the reverse. It's like you have to pare down when you realize the daunting task that you've laid out before yourself. Um, interesting seeing one that hearing about one that no we had to keep ramping up we had to keep ramping up based on the data that was coming back which is cool yeah absolutely so after uh you know spending so much time uh looking at so many different indicators from backloo island is it sayonara to storm petrels are you moving on to something else <laughs> no it's my favorite bird now it didn't start off that way but i'm i'm invested now you know, we still haven't figured out how to conserve the storm petrels and we still haven't figured out why the population has declined by 30%. So I'm still, I'm still after it. Uh, there are two main things that I uh, still want to do with my, my PhD project. The first is to go back to Bacaloo and extend the time scale uh, up to 10,000 years. You know, we have 1700 years of population dynamics, and they show really interesting trends. But then the question becomes, what about if we go back further, all the way back to the last glaciation of Newfoundland? And that's as long as we can get that sediment record. And then the second part, yeah, go ahead. Um, so I guess we didn't cover this before. That sounds like a major undertaking. Like how, how long were your uh, sediment profiles to get back 1,700 years ago? Uh, around 40 centimeters. Oh, okay. Oh. So they're relatively, uh, even with the colony. Okay. Cause it's not like, uh, a serious, like I was thinking these are small islands. How do you get there? Um, going back to a full glacial, uh, post-glacial period would be a serious undertaking, but I guess you need to imagine. It's like being in the high, in the Arctic. It's like yeah. maybe three meters of mud in that lake and that's about yeah. it. Yeah, so we went back and we collected the full record and it's around four meters long, which is still an undertaking in itself, but you know, manageable. much yeah, manageable. Not as if it here in Ontario it would have been much, much longer, I can imagine, to get ten thousand years of a record. Yeah, probably twelve meters here. Something is kind of I mean the range is usually, but that would be a good guess. Yeah. Yeah, that, that would have been an undertaking. I don't know if I would have wanted to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's so that's cool. Uh, and and what would you expect? I mean, have you started on that already? Is that like we don't want to we don't want to steal any thunder here, but uh, um, yeah, all the same proxies and and like will you be doing? Because that's a lot. You know, forty centimeters is is a lot of work to do six different indicators on four meters is another thing entirely. So yeah. And with that, it's four meters and I'm doing two lakes so that they're the two lakes on the island so that they corroborate one another. And then I also have a reference core that's two meters long. Uh, so because I'm doing so many lakes in total of around 10 meters, it's just going to be the main proxies that are really strongly representative of storm petrels that we've identified from the first study. So diatoms, isotopes, nitrogen, and probably carbon-13, as well as the cadmium and zinc. 
So fewer proxies, but a much longer record. And hopefully by having two cores, two lakes nearby that can corroborate one another, we still have a strong uh, signal of the overall island trends. Because that's like three stories of sediment, like three story building of mud. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but that makes sense. And also some of them are more time intensive, like sterols are a, a fair bit of lab work versus uh, nitrogen isotopes, which you know, take some time and the amount of sediment. So that, that makes sense to, uh, to focus in really closely on the things you expect are going to be really good indicators. Exactly. Yeah. I guess, um, and another thing is we jumped kind of into this, uh, really quickly. Um, and then you just made me think of it again by talking about reference ponds. So with these, like how different are the, like visually from being there are the reference ponds from the impacted ponds? Like, can you just like uh, outside of the fact that there being a million birds around, presumably in birds nests around, um, like, is it pretty visual? Like you don't need to do any in-depth analysis to know, okay, this is a very different pond from that environment, like 20 meters away or something. Yeah. So the reference ponds that we use for Bakaloo are uh, four kilometers apart. And the terrestrial environment is strikingly different. On Bakaloo, where the birds are, it's extremely lush, productive. There's huge amounts of ferns, there's mosses. Uh, there's Krumholz trees all over the place, you know, lush. And then when you look at the water chemistry, it's super high in phosphorus and nitrogen and metals, all the things that you would expect. Only four kilometers west of Bakaloo on Newfoundland Island, there's the reference pond. It's pretty barren all the way around it. Uh, the ecotype around the reference pond is called hyperoceanic barrens. If that gives you any impression, you know, you're walking on it and it's just really dry sphagnum mosses and pitcher plants. So it's still acidic, but there's very little nutrients. It's just looking at the two, it's completely obvious that there's something different going on. That's cool. Biovectors indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I guess, again, in terms of like the long-term record and the impacts of people that didn't show up in your early work, are they... Are the petrels that have they are they or have they been actively hunted by people at any point or are they just kind of left alone on that island yeah so this brings up an interesting thing uh maybe i'll segue into my second project on grand columbia based on this so uh storm petrels generally are not uh hunted because they're really small and they're oily and they're not very tasty um uh, there's when I was doing a little bit of background research, trying to write a discussion, I went to uh, the local library here at Queens and found some old sailors records from Newfoundland. And there's evidence of them showing up to these islands and trying to eat a bunch of the birds. You know, puffins were edible, but uh, the evidence was that storm petrels were called worth nothing to eat. And they were just, you can imagine this small, oily, nocturnal bird, not, not so good. But because they're so oily, what they ended up doing is they stuck a wick through the bird and they used them as candles, mm. which is which oh. is wild. Yeah, you know, there's there's pictures from museums of sailors, sailor museums that have storm petrels that 
have a wick still in them. So that said, there's millions of storm petrels. So we didn't suspect that that would be a major impact on, on the bird population, you know, taking a few of them for candles, not, not really that bad. But we still do suspect that you know, uh, European and human settlement in uh, the Newfoundland area did have an impact on the storm petrel populations. Uh, when we look at the second colony, Grand Colombier in St. Pierre Miquelon, the reason why we were really interested in that colony when I started that project is the population looked stable based on the few surveys from the 1980s until present. There were a couple hundred thousand birds, but this is one of the largest colonies in the world. And so we asked ourselves, well, why is this one stable when all over the world, every other storm petrel colony appears to be in decline? by 30% or more. Is there something special about the island? Is there something special about the water around it? Can we investigate the sediment cores from this colony and then look back in time and be able to understand the special dynamics that are special conditions that need to be present to support a storm petrel population? And then that can uh, influence how we can conserve the storm petrels in the future. So what we can do based on Grand Colombier and then put that, those conditions on Bacaloo to support the colony. So what we did is we collected a sediment core from Grand Colombier and we went back in time, we did the exact same thing, looked at uh, several proxies. And what we found was really surprising. Um, we went back 5,800 years and we saw fluctuations in the population size. You know, that supported what we saw in Bacaloo Island and that wasn't too surprising. The part that was surprising is that the colony is actually near its lowest that has been in the 5,800 years record. Uh, and the population started to decline around the turn of the 19th century, which lines up exactly with when European settlers arrived and uh, set up a colony around St. Pierre and Nicolas. You know, the difference between Grand Colombier, uh, or the main difference between Grand Colombier and Bacaloo is that Grand Colombier is only a few kilometers from a major city settlement, whereas Bacaloo is over 60 kilometers from a major settlement. So we suspected that nearby humans might have some kind of impact. But when we went back in time, we saw that the population was stable. And then around 1816, when Europeans arrived, the population crashed rapidly. It, began to give us evidence that it's actually the human settlement nearby that caused the population to decline. Um, there's several things that human settlement can uh, do to influence, negatively influence a seabird colony. You know, for storm petrels, yeah, they can be used as candles, but the other main aspect is they um, are strongly influenced by flaring. So uh, ship traffic and any kind of nearby lights during night because they're nocturnal can screw up their migration and cause the population to decline. And then nearby human settlement can cause fishing and other kind of warming impacts that might cause the population to decline. So we ended up tying the population decline in storm petrels on Grand Colombier to European settlement. Interesting. I did, the light thing is interesting. I didn't thought hadn't uh, wouldn't have thought just uh, they could be you know, 
influenced by something, especially at a time when we don't think of, you know, the huge light pollution that you see from modern cities, but it's sufficient uh, to be an influence because they're sensitive to it and, and their activities. That's cool. Yeah, especially it's especially strong for nocturnal migratory seabirds like storm petrels. So, hmm. yeah, there you go. Cool. Very, good. very cool stuff. Uh, don't this uh, is really interesting work, and we're really glad that you uh, spent a bit of time uh, coming and sharing it all with us. Thank you for having me. I love to talk about it. Maybe you need to get more people interested in storm petrels. You know, they're one of the most abundant birds that we have in Canada, but so few people know about them. Yeah, no, I, until you know, becoming familiar with your work, Matt, I don't think I'd even heard of leeches storm petrel before. But uh, that has changed. Good. Yeah. That, there you go. Job done, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, and your work has had quite a, you know, the work has had some, um, some media attention from uh, the, the first paper that we've been, we started talking about, but then this more recent one in PNAS. So I don't, I don't think it's just us. I'm sure some people uh, who probably already are a little attuned to environmental kinds of stories, but may not know the specifics of it. And, and, that's the goal for sure. So yeah, great. Hundred percent. Thanks again, Matt, for uh, um, talking to us about your research on biovectors. It's really interesting. And uh, the show notes, I'll link all your papers, and um, so that people can look up what we're talking about. Um, but as we say goodbye, is there anything you'd like to draw attention to, or how can people contact you if they were going to send you funding or fan mail? Fan mail, you know. Tickets to Japan to study the uh, petrol colonies there. Yeah, uh, I'm easily contactable by uh, Gmail. So just Matt P as in Paul Duda at gmail.com. Or you can go to my website, MatthewPDuda.com. It's got all of my work there with uh, descriptions of the work. And again, you can reach me from there. So that's my two ways. Fantastic. Fantastic. Very good. And thanks again for uh, spending the time chatting with us today. Thank you so much. All right. So that was our chat with Matt about his uh, award-winning research, I guess, on, uh, well, what we originally pitched as a discussion on biovectors, but having listened to it and having had that discussion, ended up uh, having... uh, almost an equal, if not greater contribution to thinking about conservation and conservation of a species and the way in which uh, archi- natural archives could be used to track species that don't have as good uh, mark and recapture kind of uh, population studies, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah. Well, I think that definitely highlights how interconnected questions can be and you know, how one question can spark off or one answer can spark off a million more questions. And I thought it was kind of interesting in particular, you know, we asked him to to talk to us today about uh, the proceedings B paper. And then it's just very much a piece in a puzzle and the next piece has already been done and out. And, you know, the next layer of the onion has been peeled back and and in (laughs) penis, like, uh, I don't know. Was that a 2021? I don't think we have ever given two Peters awards to the same person from SCL, but you know, that's a, another really, well, depends on how, if you look at the impact factor is the only 
component, which it certainly is not, uh, but a bigger paper in some ways. Yeah, no. Um, I, yeah, so tons of work that they've been doing. I think it's a, a 2020 paper as well, um, hmm. but just much later in the year. So maybe be a candidate for maybe be back to back Peter's Award winner. Who knows? Could happen. You never know. Yeah. And Adam only has one Peter's <laughs> Award. Matt, my year could have two. So yeah, I and Josh has zero. <laughs> I think that goes without saying. <laughs> no, no, it was, it was a good chat. It was nice to uh, hear a little bit about a little bit more about Matt's uh, research because I haven't. He and I never overlapped uh, at Queens, and so I've seen him talk at maybe one or two conferences very early on in in his program, and just to see how. Uh, fully developed and integrated and really kind of dynamic it's become is is nice to see and really cool to see um so yeah some great stuff there and some interesting things whether you're interested in you know you're a birder who's interested in population dynamics and how they move between different islands and under different uh, stressors or you're interested in contaminants and the way in which they can feed at different trophic levels and and have sort of very broad diets and bring in a mixture of interesting contaminants or you're interested in in the impact that has on fertilization on the lakes there's lots in this story and i think that's that's kind of an interesting thing that's common amongst many bio vector or animal vector stories is that there is a real plethora of information and a real breadth of material that can tell you about not just the lake not just the local catchment not just the species but all of it together yeah and what's interesting or funny in many ways is that material is often poo it is interesting <laughs> that that's the case isn't it <laughs> and uh i mean <laughs> if you think about what what animals move around the environment it's you know we might you know all of our knowledge might be on our cell phones but that's a human construct and and for other species they're, they're more limited it's it's often going to be a waste product that tells the story of their day uh and where they were and the environment that they found themselves in and and it's not just birds even though a lot of the examples are based on birds, but there are lots of others like uh, bats, for example, don't nest around lakes, but yeah, have I think, copious amounts of guano. Yeah. So like interesting of like, so this is a kind of a funny topic that we can maybe explore in a, um, a future episode, but not well, you're, you're leaving the, I guess, realm of paleolimnology in a lot of these cases, but using paleolimnological te techniques in when you're looking at other places where poop piles up and so um and coring the poop per se so there i can think just off the top of my head of examples of um old i guess i guess historical chimneys where you would have had a chimney swift colony so you can core the deposits that have accumulated at the bottom of the the chimney the massive bat caves um, in more tropical locations. Um, and I guess one thing that strikes me when you see these kind of studies is like, oh my goodness. Like, you know, I view the field work of paleomunja that we've done as like one of the perks of the job of like, you know, 
hopping in a canoe, going somewhere in the Boreal Shield, collecting a couple of cores, all very nice, very scenic. But these collecting cores from these back caves seems like, you know, you're descending into hell in many ways. Oh, yeah. The, fir the first step is sailing down into a bat and insect infested cave that's hotter than the fires of hell yeah <laughs> on a quest sounds on a quest for guano and and dark like pitch dark yeah yep so i'm glad i i have no interest in doing that myself but i would i'd be quite interested in spending a little time talking about the poor souls that do do those kind of labors yeah we talk about those kind of archives in some of our like more general biogeography courses and there there are lots penguin rookeries there's some stratigraphic records pack rat middens which isn't poop it's pee because they pee all over their uh there are hordes that they make uh that they bring together um but uh, they're really interesting and the interesting thing that we can get into in a, in a future episode is that they often are places where there aren't that many lakes like there aren't that many freshwater ecosystems in uh drier locations where rats live or bats uh nest so they really fill that same function so yeah i think that that'd be a good way to jump off of matt's uh introduction to a new episode that's not really the paleo limnology podcast but paleo environmental broadly yeah and uh and then as we keep going working with guano um, it just is ripe for poop jokes and poop puns, which is, you know, universally funny to everyone. Yeah. And I just feel like sharing, I got a, was told a made up joke by my eldest daughter very recently, and I thought it was fantastic. So I'm going to share with all two of our listeners. So here we go, mom. Why did Elsa take so long on the toilet? I don't know why. Because she couldn't. Let it go. <laughs> insert laugh track, Josh. Uh, editing Josh, insert laugh track. <laughs> and <laughs> No, that's funny. Um, but. Was she very pleased with herself when she came up with that joke? Oh, my goodness. Like a five-year-old, uh, you know, she just. Came up with a, a, a legitimately, like, chuckle-worthy joke, yeah. for sure. And. Uh, yeah. No, I, I understand and it. And then, uh, you know, the reaction out of me, it was uh, a magical Magical moment in the first of mm -hmm. many poop jokes from her, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I've not seen Frozen, so I don't know this joke. <laughs> I, th I think that's a character from Frozen. It is a character and from Frozen. And a song. And yeah, I, there we go. It is burned into All my right. psyche. This, this great episode is now descending uh, <laughs> rapidly into uh, its own little cave. So maybe we should wrap it up. All right. Um, do we have anything in the mailbag this week? I checked before we start recording, and unfortunately, we do not have anything at all in the mailbag. And also, through the new year, we have been neglectful in our social media duties. Duties, and um, I uh, there's not much to to report on from there. But as always, you can send us a message. Um, you can send us an email to coreideaspodcast at gmail .com. You can reach us on Twitter where our handle is at core ideas paleo and uh, show notes are available on our website. Um, it's kind of like a blog where we do a summary of all the sh um, shows Adam to date. Does. Josh doesn't do any of it. <laughs> um, and we're almost up to date. 
Um, and uh, yeah, no, they're fairly link heavy. If you're interested in doing some of the reading or seeing some of the background reading associated with uh, the individual shows. And that is our at our website, coreideas.ajesiorski.ca. Um, but basically find us on Twitter and you'll find the link to the uh, to the to the website. And other than that, um, thank you for listening and we'll talk to you again soon. Yep. Take care and we'll see you next time.